there's six to eight thousand rivets in a pair of floats depending on the model uh, the bigger floats obviously have more rivets um, and each one's done by hand you know each rivet is is done by hand some are done with the assistance of um, a, a big automatic rivet machine but every single one is lined up by hand and either squeezed or, or bucked individually G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 24 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. Great to be back with another episode, folks, all about float planes and flying boats. As usual, to get in contact with me, my email is thatmallardguy at hotmail.com or you can follow me on my Instagram page and send me a message at thatmallardguy. Don't forget to leave a review and share this podcast to help the show grow, folks. Now, just yesterday on my Instagram page, I sent out a request for any questions and it has been a while since I've had a Q&A, so let's get straight into some of my favorite questions from that post. Okay, so the first question comes from a couple of people and that's about the same topic, one from Harry.Kempton and the second one from GT.Wings, both asking about the rougher sort of sea state we can safely land in or how big the sweller waves the mallard can tolerate. I get asked this question a lot and there's two things you really need to take into factor. First one is the book figure, which is two and a half feet. So that's the actual uh, number that the um, operating handbook displays as the figure that uh, we can land in. The second one is what's actually happening on the water. There's two things that can happen. You can get a swell that can occur over a long distance. So that can come in um, even on a glassy water day, especially in the open ocean there. The best example of that is... uh, what you see down at your normal surf beach. So you've got a swell on the water there um, that's not being affected by a local wind effect. And then the second part is the local wind effect. So um, any wind chop that's been blown up because of the windy conditions on the day there. So you've got to take into account both of those when you're actually coming into land or taking off. Luckily, most of the areas that we operate in they're protected from that open ocean swell. So it's generally the wind chop that you've got to take into account. Um, but there are certain times when, when that open ocean swell is a factor and that's where uh, certain techniques such as paralleling swell um, can come into it. And then once again, that is another on-the-spot decision you've got to make where you take a, a crosswind, for example, but you're paralleling the swell. That's one of the great things I love about float flying is the fact that you have so many variables when on the water. Not every water takeoff or water landing is the same. So throwing in all a mix of all of these things is um, one of the great challenges of float flying. Okay, so the next question comes from Benjamin.Henning. He asks, what category are you under with CASA? And he also says, awesome page man. Thanks very much, Benjamin.Henning. Mate, uh, we operate the Perling flights under private operations. Um, but obviously the work we do with the fishermen to their fishing boats and also the coastal camps, they are charter. So we, for all intents and purposes, are basically a full charter operation. And finally, why Honey Doe? Another great Instagram name there. Uh, sends in a question. You hit a flock of birds over the open ocean. Dual engine failure. How well does it glide to landing? May we have actually practiced this a couple of times in the, our training and I must say it actually glides really well 
which is good to know. Obviously, being a flying boat in that event, which you're hoping that that never happens, obviously, but in that event uh, where you do have a dual engine failure, it's great that you have that option of being able to land on the water or on the land safely. Um, It just adds a lot more um, availability to a forced landing in that event of uh, that occurring. So, yeah, thanks very much for that question as well. Okay, everyone, on to today's guest. Following on from an amazing chat I had with Amy Gesh last episode from Whip Air, I'm heading over to another float building company, PK Floats, to talk with manufacturing engineer Levi Gimond. Levi is not only an engineer, he is also a seaplane pilot. But for now, it's time to fly in our private aircraft. Choosing a set of PK Floats to turn it from a land plane to a seaplane We'll leave it to the experts to attach a set of tough PKs, making our beautiful machine ready to get going on the step. Right engine is turning. Twelve percent fuel. A lot. Okay, welcome Levi Gimond from PK Floats in the States, mate. How are you going? Good, good. How are you doing? Good, mate. Uh, great to have you on the show, mate. It's uh, talking all about uh, seaplane floats this week. We had Amy Gesh from uh, Whip Air on, uh, on Wednesday's show there. And uh, we've got you guys from uh, PK. Very excited to hear what you guys uh, are offering and uh, what the differences are in, in such a small company compared to such a large company like Whip Air, mate. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. I'm happy to, uh, to be on the podcast with you. So, mate, what's um, what's your background? I know that you're also a uh, a pilot as well, but you're also doing uh, some maintenance work. So, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your history? Yeah, so I grew up in the same town that PK is operating in. Uh, it's just a little community in in uh, northern Maine. Population of the area is about five thousand people. I always knew of PK and knew of the airport. I had my first airplane ride here in a Cessna 172 and it was flown by the production manager that I work with now and that was probably in the early uh, 90s that I went for a ride with him was really hooked on aviation ever since I you know went to ground school when I was 16 some things came up and I put off flight lessons till after college Uh, I graduated um, with a mechanical engineering degree from the local University of Maine and as soon as I finished up with that I I started taking flying lessons and six months later had my pilot's license and then worked for for PK floats for uh, a year or or so Um, and unfortunately the company closed down in 2012 uh, due to the owner's death Um, but luckily it was reopened a couple of years after that in 2015 and, and I came back to work here and got my float rating uh, in, in the meantime there and came back with a float plane with a lot of flying experience and the engineer and help out on the shop floor when I can because we're, we are such a small team and I, I love working here. It's a kind of a dream job for somebody with an engineering degree and, and someone who likes to fly. And that, that's <laughs> pretty much it yeah nice so tell us a little bit about pk's history like what does actually pk stand for and kind of uh how long have they been operating around the area 
Yeah, so PK Floats was started in 1954 by a gentleman named Peter Kellner. So that's where the, the P and the K oh, comes. Okay. He, yeah. um, he was very fond of Edo Floats. He had a lot of experience with Edos, but he thought he could do a little bit better. So he developed a float very similar to the Edo 1400, and he called it the PK 1500. The very first float uh, didn't actually have any attachment rigging, and he relied on Edo parts to attach that particular float to the Aronka Champion aircraft. A little while later, with the success of that float, he developed a larger float called the PK-1800, and that was certified on some Satabrias and Super Cubs. If anyone has seen a PK-1800, it's very similar to the Edo 2000. fits a lot of the same airplanes. Uh, both of those floats uh, were discontinued in the early 70s, uh, sorry, in the early 60s. At that point, the company had changed hands a new engineer came along and purchased the company. His name was Court Converse of the Converse shoe family. He had a passion for aviation and using his engineering experience, he developed a flat top float, which is the predecessor to all the floats we make now. Uh, that was called a PK 3500. It was geared for the Cessna 180 and 185 market. Unfortunately, he was killed in an aviation accident, and at the time, he owed a lot of money to uh, an engineering company called DeVore Aviation, and the estate settled with DeVore uh, in exchange for the rights and the intellectual property to PK Floats. Um, so that shifted all the manufacturing to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Not exactly float-flying country, if, if you're thinking of the American Southwest, but they worked with some manufacturers in Maine to produce the floats. They actually brought on a former Edo engineer to develop uh, amphibious versions of the original 3500, as well as a larger float and several smaller floats. Everything from a Super Cub to a um, Helio 800 were developed in that time period. The company was doing well. There was a up until the mid 80s, there was a downturn in, in general aviation. Things kind of slowed down. And then they started only doing built to order floats. And then in the late 90s, when DeVore wasn't really doing much of anything with PK floats, a local guy named Alton Bouchard purchased the company, moved everything up to Lincoln, and started uh, PK floats where it is today. Yeah, wow. Thanks for a great time. Great history of the company there. Well, I guess one, one question I've got to ask there is um, what prompted Peter back in the day there to create a better float? Was there something that the Edo floats were missing that he thought he could do better with? I'm not really sure. If you were to compare the two floats, um, the average person might mistake one for the other. They are very, very similar. And it might have been something where he just wanted uh, to change very, very subtle things about the design and try to improve the performance. I don't really know why he decided uh, to, to pursue this. It, it's a, a big endeavor nowadays to develop a new float, and I'm sure it was a little easier in the 50s, but it would still be just a massive amount of work to design a float, come up with all the tooling to build the float. I still am in touch with some of his family. Uh, they call every once in a while just to see how things are going here. But I don't know the real reason why he actually started 
um, yeah, right. other than maybe he could make some improvements. Yeah, absolutely. Now, mate, um, you're the manufacturing engineer at uh, PK Floats, but it's a pretty small team, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about um, the operation today, how big it is, and, and what kind of uh, floats you're actually developing now? Yeah, so right now we have 10 employees. Um, we don't really need a full-time engineer, uh, so I do a lot of sales calls, parts support, technical support, some of the manufacturing, and then some of the prototype development. Um, we have uh, a gentleman here that's the production manager that's been flying his entire life, um, you know, a 5,000-hour seaplane pilot that's very, very knowledgeable about flying floats. And he's also a A&P mechanic uh, with the IA designation, so he can do the installs um, and fly the airplane. And he really, really knows the product. If anyone uh, calls here with questions about the older floats that have long since been discontinued, he's the guy that will know the answer. Um, in combination with him, we have uh, a lead uh, technician building the floats that's been here since PK opened originally in this location, uh, almost 20 years of, of experience building floats on top of 20 years of working in the Air Force doing sheet metal work. So he's a real, real skilled guy that helps teach the new the new people how to build the floats. Um, it, it, there's kind of a running joke here that He's the only one that's riveted two potato chips together without breaking the potato <laughs> chips. And, and we had picture proof of that. So he's a very skilled employee. Yeah, wow. The, the president of the company's been a pilot since he was 16. Um, he's uh, He currently has a 185 on amphibious floats that he uh, demonstrates all over different trade shows. And anyone that's interested in our product uh, can go for a demo flight with him. Um the production manager's wife manages the, the front office and a lot of the FAA paperwork um, associated with the, um, the uh, approval to manufacture at this location. And then there's a, a handful of uh, float technicians building the product. Yeah, nice. Sounds like a very tight uh, little family you got going there, mate. Yeah, yeah. Most of us have been here for a while now. I, I've worked... Uh, for the past five years right here uh, and then a year before the shutdown. So I've been here six years and I'm one of the, the lower time people here. No, that's very cool. And mate, so let's talk about a little bit, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about what uh, what you are actually developing there. Now, I guess Amy came on the show from Whip Air and, uh, you know, they're such a huge uh, operation there compared to you guys with nearly 200 staff. Um, what what kind of market are you targeting with your set of floats? And I guess, what's what's the sales pitch? I guess uh, for PK as yeah. to um, you know why we would would choose some PK floats for our aircraft that we're uh, hopefully going to one day buy. <laughs> so when Alton purchased the company and started manufacturing, there was really a need for an amphibious float that was a little bit more modern than the ones designed in the mid seventies. He borrowed on some ideas that the other manufacturers were using uh, with composite leaf springs for the nose gear and, and some other ideas that made a really lightweight product. And he adapted the PK-3000, which is a float for the Cessna 180 and 185. He adapted that to an amphibian. Um, and then a few years later, he took the same technology uh, in the landing gear of that float 
and turned another smaller straight float into another amphibious float for the Aviat Husky. So at this point in time, PK had an amphibious float for the Cessna 185 and the Aviat Husky. And those have been very, very popular. Um, nine times out of ten when people call now for new floats, they want amphibious floats, regardless of if we make them or not. They're looking for amphibs as opposed to the straight floats without any wheel landing gear. Right now, what we're focusing a lot on is the FAA certified products, those two amphibious floats, as well as some non-certified amphibious floats for the experimental market. Uh, we just shipped one set of floats for a backcountry Super Cub. That's a roughly 2,000 pound gross weight airplane, uh, a variant of the the famous Piper Super Cub. That particular airplane uh, is a, a kit-built airplane, but it's based on the Piper Cub uh, with a lot of modifications on leading edge slats, higher horsepower uh, engines, a very high-performance high airplane. The, the next set of floats to go out the door is for an Air Cam, which is a twin-engine pusher airplane uh, we specifically made those floats as light as possible because the air cam's an 1800 pound airplane but the um, the gross weight or sorry the the center of gravity changes when you exit the airplane when it's at a dock so you actually need a a larger float to keep the airplane from nosing way up so these um, these experimental floats have become pretty common in our production schedule the, the current one we're developing is for a Carbon Cub aircraft, which the Carbon Cubs have exploded in popularity, and we've built a, a smaller, lightweight version of one of our existing floats specifically for this market. So you guys are really focusing on the, on the smaller-sized aircraft market, basically? Yeah, the experimental market seems like it's taking off here, um, and, and that's kind of what we're geared towards. We can customize a float for the experimental market because it's not it's not locked into an FAA certification. So if you were to order a set of floats for your carbon cub and said this is going to Alaska, I want the toughest float we can build, I can change the bottom thickness to make it a little bit heavier but a little bit more durable at the same time. Or you could want one that is the lightest float out there and we could build that for you too. Yeah, really cool. Bit of, you know, variable technical work there from you guys to help out the customer that's really cool and mate what uh, what's the process for you guys when building a float in the hangar there um tell us a little bit about how it all starts out and and how long does it take and and how many guys have you got kind of working on one set of floats is it is it at a time or is it um separately how does it all work generally there's about six pair of floats in the shop being worked on at any one time it's hard for more than one person to be working on a single pair of floats. So generally, we're, we're building floats ahead. Uh, we, we have orders to fulfill, and when we don't have orders to fulfill, we're building inventory. Right now, we're, we're building orders that we're, we're booked out until early spring of next year. So the process wow. starts with uh, raw sheet metal stock, raw aluminum sheet metal stock, and aluminum extrusions and all the flat pieces are, are cut on a cnc router uh, each piece is deburred by hand acid etched and formed whether it has flanges or or other bends folds and whatnot um, and then it's 
primed uh, before it starts going into sub-assemblies and then later on to the assembly. Um, that process to go from raw material to one finished hull takes about six or eight weeks, and then the second hull will be a few weeks behind it because each one is built on its own uh, jig by one guy. The, the float technician that's working on that one float takes it right through the process until there's a finished hull. Um, in the case of the amphibious floats, it goes from, from that stage on to some electrical work and some hydraulic work uh, before it goes into the paint booth uh, to be sprayed and, and finished up. Yeah, wow. So pretty quick process, really, six to eight weeks for a float to be built. That's um, pretty quick, I guess, when you've got one guy working on it. A yeah. A lot of hard work, I imagine. It, it is. There's six to 8,000 rivets in a pair of floats, depending on the model. Uh, the bigger floats obviously have more rivets. And each one's done by hand. You know, each rivet is is done by hand. Some are done with the assistance of um, a, a big automatic rivet machine, but every single one is lined up by hand and either squeezed or, or bucked individually. So there's a lot that goes into building this. The, the parts are all handled multiple times before they're put into the final process, uh, the final assembly. Um, it's very labor intensive. And, and that's one thing that in the early days of float building, labor was relatively cheap. Now that labor is relatively expensive, um, it, that's where the cost comes in. Yeah, right. Now, you, you spoke about um, hand riveting and a lot of uh, a lot of custom or hand work going into these aircraft. Remember, um, a friend used to say in the car industry, it depended whether you bought a, a Monday car or a Friday car, depending on how <laughs> well it was put together, mate. Is, it, is there anything a little bit like that in the, in the floats? Can there be a few rivets that... Uh, aren't squeezed hard enough on a Friday afternoon? <laughs> Generally, the uh, the guy detailing the float before it goes into paint will, will mark any rivet that has a flaw in it, whether it's not seated correctly. Um, if the guy running the rivet gun slips uh, and, and dents um, the rivet or the skin, that will need to be addressed. So there definitely is variance between one float and another float. They They're all the same float, but you can see the, the craftsmanship in each one. Um, and, and right now, the crew that we have working here, it's probably the, the best product coming out that I've seen out of this shop. So we're doing a, a really good job. We got some skilled workers out there. Um, but they are definitely a hand-built product. Um, you know, there's nothing really automated other than the CNC cutting that cuts the, the part the very first uh, step of the process. What about um, repair work, mate? Have you got any, like, do you guys get floats that come in and need repairs and, and you're doing that? Or is that kind of more of a kind of aircraft engineer on, on site at, at, you know, different airfields? We are not a repair station. So we primarily work on new floats only. Um, there's been rare occasions where uh, a customer has said, fix these floats, um, and in that instance, it was actually uh, Red Bull that owned the pair of floats. And the floats were so poorly maintained that we ended up replacing 90% of the parts with brand new and only saved a handful of parts on this repair. And uh, they take much better care of the product now. It was actually flown in Fiji for about 10 years with, with zero maintenance. And um, they ended up shipping it back to us for a uh, more or less a complete overhaul on the floats, but that was a rare circumstance where um, we normally don't do that kind of thing. 
Yeah, right. What was it doing in Fiji, that aircraft? I believe one of the owners of Red Bull owns a resort called La Kula Island uh, Resort, and it's kind of a private island uh, that VIP guests uh, will go out to. And it was more or less a private airplane at that resort. Um, and it was kept 20 feet from the salt water, and it looked like it just didn't receive the proper corrosion maintenance, you know, the corrosion repairs and remedies. Speaking of salt water there, I know a lot of states is river flying and lake flying. Um, Do you deal a lot with corrosion uh, on those floats and and how do you prepare for floats going to salt water? So we have customers in the Gulf of Mexico and 10 or 15 years ago, it was much more common to have a set of floats in the bayou uh, flying supplies out to drilling rigs and barges. They've been replacing the 185 Cessnas with helicopters. So they've gone away from the, the straight float and the amphibious float airplanes a little bit. Um, but they do very, very good preventative maintenance down there with our floats. Um, I've seen floats come back after 10 or 15 years of being down there. And I couldn't tell that they had been flown in salt water. They were spraying the insides with a corrosion inhibitor called ACF-50. Um, they used paracetone on all the hardware. That's a really good corrosion inhibitor. They washed the floats down and took them out of the water every single day. Um, we have customers in Alaska, uh, especially southeast Alaska, that operate in salt water. They love our float because it handles the rough water better than the other floats on the market because the bottom design is different. Everyone else uses a fluted bottom, where ours is a deep V bottom, and it it doesn't take off as quick as the fluted bottom in some circumstances, like glassy water, but the airplane doesn't experience the heavy pounding that the fluted bottoms do. What does fluted bottom mean? If you looked at the bottom of uh, a whip line or an Edo or an arrow set, there's uh, the scallop shape on the bottom, so it it's hard to describe what that shape looks like, but instead of a, a V, it would almost look like uh, maybe inverted uh, W shapes or, or small U shapes that that scallop out the bottom of the, the float. And that design works very well for glassy water. Um, ours works very well in, in rough, rough water conditions, and it works a little bit... Uh, worse than theirs in the the flat water um but it's a compromise that some people uh they they want the rough water performance and they'll compromise on glassy water um, and that's generally where our customer uh, comes in you got to have a compromise there somewhere you can't have the perfect float i imagine uh, yeah for all yeah. different types of conditions several of our floats that are in commercial use have um in excess of twenty thousand hours of being used commercially and and two of those floats that I'm thinking of, uh, this is time logged on several different airplanes, but because they kept very good maintenance records of the floats themselves, we're able to show that, you know, these floats are surviving for 40 years. Uh, Multiple airplanes are being flown on a single pair and and they're actually wearing the airplanes out before the floats are, um, you know, no longer serviceable. And some of these are flying in salt water. Yeah, 20,000 hours and, and 40 years, mate. 
doesn't sound like the perfect business model, unfortunately. You guys are going to put yourself out of business by making that those flights last That is definitely uh, something that we've recognized here that <laughs> we have a hard time getting people to buy new floats because these floats are lasting. It It's not uncommon to sell uh, some parts to fix somebody's water rudder on a set of floats that is 40 years old or older. I mean, mid-1975 is when this new generation of uh, PK 3000 and 3500 came out and they're still out there being used. Yeah, my first uh, seaplane job was on a 206 with PK floats on it So, and they were a very old set of floats as well. Um, they were great. They did leak a little bit though, unfortunately, over time but uh, we, we put them in some pretty rough salt water as well so they uh, were probably uh, at the end of their line. We should have nearly gone and come to you and bought some new PK floats. But um, You know, the the adhesives and the sealants that were used back then um, have come a long, or they've come a long way now. Uh, modern adhesives will build a float that is leak-free for years, and the aluminum, um, in my opinion, is definitely the way to go on a seaplane float. It just holds up very, very well over time. Hey, mate. Um, so, do you guys actually? Um build floats for the specific aircraft and then fit it in the shop and the customer can then come and fly that aircraft away or how does that work generally? Are you, are you shipping floats to the customer? We do both. About half the time the customer will bring the airplane here and we'll install them in the shop and the other half of the time the, the customer is generally too far away or doesn't have the time to bring the airplane out and, and we have a um, one guy that delivers all of our floats over the road He's been doing it for as long as uh, PK has been located in this facility here, and we've never had any float get damaged. Uh, we actually ship them on a, a special rack on the back of a pickup truck, so it's similar to, to putting a canoe on a pickup truck, but the floats are over the cab in the bed of the truck, and they're supported in a way so we don't strap them down with conventional straps. Uh, nothing touches the the finished paint on the float um, there's actually a a um, a shortened spreader bar that holds the floats apart in that spreader bar is what's being attached to the truck itself uh, so we don't create anything uh, anything that goes out of here is shipped uh, in that manner and it's worked very very well we, we've shipped floats uh, from Maine to Washington State and 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 everywhere in between um, so would you fly an aircraft away from the base there and to the, to the customer as a finished product yourself? Do you do any of those kind of ferry, ferry work? Um, I don't. Uh, one of the guys here, um, he does any of the ferrying uh, just because of his seaplane time and, and the insurance requirements. Um, generally, we don't end up delivering airplanes because the customer is so excited to have a new pair of floats that, that they end up coming up here, flying up commercially and hopping in the airplane and doing a little bit of dual instruction to get familiar with it and then and then heading out. No, oh, that's that's fair enough. I think if I had a, a brand new set of uh, PKs on my seaplane, I'd, I'd be wanting to get get in my hands on it as quick as possible. So that's fair enough. For a lot of people, it's a once-in-a-lifetime purchase. Um, the higher end of our product sells uh, for $89,000. Um and on the lower end of the amphibious floats, uh, $60,000. So it's a big purchase, and generally the customer is very excited uh, to hop in the airplane for the first time on, on amphibious floats and taxi out to the runway and, and take off and go do some water landings. 
and I spoke to Amy a little bit about that as well, you know, with the smaller sets of floats, they're generally for the private operator um, compared to the larger sets that they make, um, generally for the commercial operator. So like you said, you're probably dealing with a lot more private pilots, first maybe first seaplane, um, you know, getting a new set of floats on their, their fixed wing plane that they've had for a while. So like you said, a lot of excitement through the customer. Yeah, you know, I think it's probably 50% is private pilots and then the other 50% is operators doing scenic flights or part 135, uh, you know, supplying lodges and and flying clients to and from commercial lodges. Um, A little bit of everything. There's some flight instruction that goes on on our floats. Um, A lot of people just want to have a float plane uh, because renting isn't really an option here. Um, insurance is just so high on, on rental seaplanes that if you want to fly floats, you kind of have to own the, the float plane. So you do a bit of flying as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what kind of flying you're doing at PK or is it just mainly private stuff? Um, I've done a lot of flying on my own. Um, when I first started working here out of college, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of money and I bought the first airplane I could afford. I think looking back, it was a 1941 Taylor craft, um, 65 horsepower, two place airplane, uh, you know, original wood spar in the wing that was 71 years old at the time. And I flew that for, uh, you know, well over a hundred hours, uh, with some help from the production manager here, he made sure it was airworthy and we fixed a lot of little things, put it on skis in the winter. I actually had a set of floats for that and had them all ready to go on, but that was, around the time that PK closed down and I ended up moving uh, further north for another job for a little while and didn't quite dare to fly that airplane as underpowered as it was uh, without Keith as a little bit of uh, uh, instruction and a, and a little bit of encouragement. Um, after after I sold that airplane, I ended up buying a Cessna 172 on floats. Um, it had been owned by the same gentleman for uh, 29 years. It was always on floats and he flew it to his sporting camps to deliver supplies and, and lumber. Um, and I flew that a lot. That was that was a float plane I have the most experience in. Uh, I really like the Skyhawks as a two-person float plane. I think they do a great job. They're fairly economical to fly. Um, in the past couple of years, the Skyhawks have um, gone up in value significantly, so they're not as economical to purchase right now um but they do make a good float plane mate uh, now we're getting uh down the end of the uh, episode here of the podcast and uh i want to finish with uh, a little splash and dash questionnaire that i talk to with um with everyone first of all what is the uh, your favorite seaplane that you've actually flown you know i really like the avia husky it's based on a piper super cub but it's a little bit different. It's a little bit heavier airplane. It's a little bit more robust. It's a really, really nice flying, uh, you know, stick and rudder type airplane. Uh, and it's got the performance. Uh, we actually put one on straight floats as part of a certification process. And I got to fly that, uh, you know, one summer and just kind of fell in love with with that airplane. Um, I don't have a lot of time in, in Piper Cubs, uh, but for the airplanes that I've flown, the, the Husky is right up there. It's being my favorite. Yeah, they look like a great machine. I'd love to get my hands on one of those one day for sure. Um, what's one of the, the coolest planes that you've actually 
uh, build a set of floats for and, and put on uh, an aircraft? You said that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think some of the the new experimental stuff that we're building is uh, probably my favorite uh, floats to work on. Uh, building a set of floats for uh, a carbon cub, you know, right from scratch, right from the drawing board on my uh, on my computer, coming up with the design, cutting it out on the CNC router, uh, and seeing it go right through to we're about ready to install that set. That's that's been one of my my favorite projects here, and I, I haven't got to fly it yet because it, it's not on the airplane. But I'll I'll be I'll be happy to take that out um, as soon as we get it bolted on and, and see how it goes. How long does a design process take? Like if you're designing a brand new float, like you said, it takes six to eight weeks or something to build you know, a, a float that you've already designed and know how to build. What about something that you know is just coming straight off your computer like you mentioned? Yeah, so the, the intellectual property that you know PK holds, um, it, it, one float builds on the next float, builds on the next float. And, and so on. So a lot of the existing designs um, are, are there. Uh, we're kind of basing the new stuff on the stuff that's proven and, and doing away with the stuff that didn't work out so well. Um, so that float, it took a couple months of, of developing the design, uh, looking back at floats that were made for the Super Cub in the 70s, uh, improving on those with the modern manufacturing. Um, and you know, it, it took me a little bit longer to design it than than to actually have it built, um, and that's pretty fast. I think there's, you know, a lot that goes into the design, but because there's so much knowledge base here in the shop with the uh, all the existing designs, that I think it went relatively quickly. No, if it's only just a little bit longer than it takes to build, I think that's very fast to design a brand new product. So, no, that's that's very quick, I reckon. Back to flying uh, splash and dash questions. Uh, a lake, a river, open ocean, or maybe a coral cay. What's, what's been your favorite place to land a seaplane so far? I, I really enjoy the river flying. Uh, there's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of rivers in Maine. There's a lot of lakes too, but the rivers are often uh, narrow and you can get down below the, the tree level and kind of cruise uh, for, a, for a long ways on some of the rivers. And that's... Uh, that's some of the flying that I enjoyed the most. Yeah, river flying is super fun, isn't it? Um, when you I think in Alaska they they call that IFR. You know, I follow the rivers. <laughs> A little bit different to the I follow roads that most people would, uh, <laughs> would kind of joke about. Um, what's a dream seaplane to fly in the future? Anything that kind of um, really want you know you you want to jump out of your skin and get out and, and get into a seaplane? What what kind of um, seaplane would be your dream? You know, if I won the lottery, um, I would probably be um, calling up the company in Idaho that builds the Sherpa turbine-powered uh, eight-passenger tube and fabric airplanes. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They, they never got FAA certification on them, uh, even though they're trying. They, um, they're a 400-horsepower uh, eight-passenger Super Cub, more or less. You know, big, big wing, huge flap. Uh, amazing performance um you know that would probably be the ticket right there yeah no i haven't actually um heard of these guys before sherpa is it sherpa aircraft yeah yeah so they developed a five place airplane and then uh, i think they went up to an eight place they started with a piston engine um and then they're into turbine engines now 
Um, I don't know if they'll ever get certification, but it's an awesome looking airplane. Yeah, right. Just having a look at it now, it's um, yeah, like you said, it's a, well, they they claim it to be a a super cub on steroids. That's pretty <laughs> cool, and and on floats as well. That's that's very uh, interesting. Um, yeah, I have to keep an eye on that one. Hopefully, that happens sooner rather than later because that'd be a, a very fun airplane to fly around in. Very cool answer. I've never had um, anyone say anything like that before. So, uh, what about piston or turbine seaplane? Have you flown any turbines yet? I have not. No. Only piston. Is that on the uh, horizon soon to get into a turbine seaplane and, and do a bit of flying? Well, uh, one of the one of the guys here, the production manager, he, he flies a um, Texas turbine uh, Cessna caravan, so 900 horsepower caravan on, on amphibious floats. And I uh, haven't snagged a ride with him yet, but he, he does fly that uh, for its owner occasionally in the summer. And I'd be happy to jump in with him and go for a ride. <laughs> Fair enough. And, mate, finally, um, like I said, uh, I normally finish this uh, podcast or the episode with uh, a question about advice for aspiring seaplane pilots. But what about anyone who wants to get into the uh, float manufacturing industry? Have you got any advice for those people? <laughs> um, it's a tough business. Uh, the, the margins are slim. But if you enjoy aviation... Um, it's definitely a, a good way to work around airplanes, in, in my opinion. Uh, definitely do your homework. Uh, there's not a lot of seaplane manufacturers out there, um, and you know that's for a good reason. It is a hard industry to to make it in. And bring bring your earmuffs, by the sound of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, although the the composite manufacturing is probably a bit quieter than than bucking rivets. How how, how does that work? Um, I think it's similar to how they build boats um, they start with a, a mold and, and lay lay the the layers up in the shape of the float as opposed to cutting out metal oh, okay. and riveting yep. it to the shape of the yeah, float right. well, there you go uh, if you want to avoid noise get into the composite float building <laughs> industry um, perfect levi appreciate you taking uh, some time out to come and talk to everyone about um, what it's like to work at pk floats there and telling us a little bit about the product there and uh, really appreciate you coming on the step mate hope you had fun I did, I did, thank you. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks to Levi for making the time in his busy schedule to talk to us about PK Floats and their story. I love hearing stories like that uh, that are a little bit left field but give us all a wider understanding and appreciation of the seaplane industry. Great stuff there, Levi. Now, folks, it is time to share this podcast, leave a review or jump back and listen to another great seaplane story that you haven't got to yet. Coming up next week on episode 25, I speak with an Australian seaplane and bush plane chief pilot operating out of a small town in New South Wales. Uh, the cubs and beavers, you can, you can be, when they're on wheels, you, you can take off on one wheel and um, reduce the drag on one side. And, and I, I do that sort of out of force of habit now on takeoff, um, just like they do on a seaplane. You, you pop one float out, you reduce the drag. Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>